1: Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. At the turn of the 13th century of the Christian era, a writer from Baghdad wrote a description of Egypt. He details an encyclopedic fashion, its animals, its plants, its ancient monuments, and then in an excerpted volume produced for the caliph at the time, He went on to describe two years of famine and the horrific and harrowing events that occurred. The resulting text is in translation now from New York University Press's Library of Arabic Literature as A Physician on the Nile. It's equal parts funny, exciting, wondrous, sad, harrowing, and in places not a little difficult to read. It's been prepared in an expert translation by Tim McIntosh Smith. Tim McIntosh Smith is an Arabist traveler, writer, and lecturer. He's been making his home in the Yemeni capital, Sana'a, for four decades. I spoke with Tim about his translation, his work, Abdulatif al-Bardedi, the author of the original text, and more from Sri Lanka, where he's currently staying. There aren't a lot of people I'd be willing to start an interview with at a time I'd normally be preparing for bed. This one was exciting, and it was a great honor to be able to interview Tim. Here's my interview with him. Tim McIntosh-Smith, welcome to the New Books Network, and thank you for being with us. Tradition on New Books Network is that we start by asking our guests to tell us about themselves and their background, and what led them toward this project in general? Um, so let me turn the, the spotlight on yourself. Um, how did you get interested in Arabic literature in the first place? And, and what led you in the direction of this, this project?
2: Let me actually start with this particular project. And then I'll come on to Arabic literature. Because um, the book, uh, A Physician on the Nile, it's kind of taking me right back to the beginning. Uh, or almost to the beginning, and it's, it's a book about Egypt, and a lot of it, it's got a very long and important chapter about Egyptian antiquities, pharaonic antiquities, and it's got a lot, it's got pyramids, it's got mummies, you know, it's got everything. And imagine when you were little, a little boy or a little girl, you know, what small child does not get excited about mummies, um, you go to the museum, and if you're lucky, you live somewhere that's got a museum with mummies and and all those sort of slightly gory things from ancient Egypt. And um, they're impressive and, 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 and inspiring to a young brain. So I'm going right back to the beginning. And I grew up in, in the city of Bristol in the southwest of England and was very fortunate in knowing, through sort of family connections, quite a prominent Egyptologist. So when I was in my teens, my mid-teens, Leslie Grinsell, uh, the Egyptologist, very kindly agreed to teach me uh, hieroglyphics. And we sort of used to go to his place, and we went through Gardiner's Egyptian grammar, uh, the, the kind of Bible of those who, who learn um, hieroglyphics. So I had that background, and even better, Leslie was at Bristol City Museum, which has a very good Egyptology collection, and he got me a job as a volunteer there. So I actually got to, uh, in my mid-teens, to realize some of the dreams of my childhood and kind of mess around with mummies. And they had this um, big basement. It's probably still the same. Uh, and it was absolutely stuffed with with Egyptian antiquities from Victorian expeditions, mostly. And there I was. And I was set at the age of, I guess, 16, 17, in my summer vacations, to catalogue things there. And um, uh, just a little story, um, a sort of silly little anecdote. Uh, I remember I, I was cataloguing something called the MAP Collection, M-A-P-P. And the MAP sisters were two eccentric Victorian ladies who had been to Egypt, came back with a load of stuff, and most of it was junk, but there were some really quite interesting bits and pieces. But among the, the junk, I came across a mummified foot, and um, on it was, uh, was labelled in this sort of lovely Victorian copperplate, Foot of a Queen. So I started. Um, I started typing my catalog card, you know, on an old-fashioned typewriter in those days, uh, and you know, got to size. And I thought, well, you know, it's a foot, so I should give it a shoe size, um, uh, you know, an approximate shoe size. So I, I slipped off one of my own shoes, <laughs> slipped oh my goodness. A <laughs> foot into it, and of course, just at that minute. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> One of the curators turned up, and he kind of looked at me and looked at the foot in my shoe and said, <laughs> oh, "That's sick." Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was I was brought up among mummies. Strange to as though it sounds, you know. Uh, at least in my in my vacation time, so I had that background, and when I um, got into um, Oxford University. I I was actually accepted to read Egyptology, um, and then had had uh, misgivings at the last minute. I thought, oh gosh, you know, um, uh, we didn't used to bother too much about careers in those days. But but I thought, oh, you know, I might be kind of limiting my future a bit. So I thought I'd do something more general. Went on to classics, uh, Latin and Greek, and did the first part of a classics degree, and then really got a bit bored with it, because I'd been studying Latin and Greek at school for 10 years before that and and wanted to challenge, and and therefore I kind of slipped into Arabic. So I don't know if all this makes sense as a a trajectory, but um, I I, I have the Egyptological background and then slipped from Latin into, into Arabic. So to look at this book and, and work on this book, Abdul Latif al um book about Egypt, uh, it, you, you know, it's a sort of summation of my very young interests. So it made you know it made a lot of sense to work on this book for me. And in the eighties, nineties, I suppose I got to know Cairo a bit. Uh, I was living at the time in 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 Sana'a. In, in Yemen, which is still really my base. And, um, but I got to know Cairo and was, was quite close to, to um, a family there, as I still am. And um, uh, a friend of mine got married um, to a lady from the family, Habiba, and she's always been a great friend, and she has sort of opened the, 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 the doors of, of Cairo to me all the fantastic food and and that that, um, really vivid Kyrene life. She was brought up right in the middle of things, um, next to the mausoleum of Hyatt Bay in in what they call the City of the Dead. That's
1: very much in the middle of everything, yes.
2: Oh, it is absolutely in the middle. Um, uh, uh, And so having that kind of inroad into modern egypt and having that background in ancient egypt it's it, it's really covering the sort of it's bracketing the sort of material that um abdul latif covers in his book so turning
1: then to to this book uh Kitab which uh, is translated as physician on the nile how did you become interested in this particular manuscript? Uh, I want to follow up in a moment asking about the author because he was quite prolific and this does not this is apparently one of his more rare still extant manuscripts uh, is what I gather from your from your introduction.
2: We we'll talk a bit more later about Abdul Latif al uh, uh, baghdadi but as you say yes he was ex- exceedingly prolific and I think his bibliography lists 150 plus Titles, all right. Not all book length. Quite a few of them are, um, or most of them are, 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 sort of article length. But um, not many of them have survived. We'll come back to this later. But yeah, how did I get onto 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 his book, which we call, by the way, a physician on the Nile, Kitāb al al-Atibār, as you say, and we'll look a bit closer. Closer later at at, at the actual Arabic title. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the reason was that um, I I wrote in the 1990s, I spent most of the 1990s writing a book about Yemen. Mm -hmm. And that came out in 1997. And in 1998, it it won a prize. It's always a bit dangerous to win a prize with your first book because you think that all your other books ought to win prizes. But, um, no, it did very well, and it kind of set me on the course of, of, um, of writing. And it was – the Yemen book was, was, was classed as travel literature, mm-hmm. which it really isn't. It's kind of more residence literature. Oh, I, I travel around the country and so on, but um, it, it's not so much about movement as being in a place. So I thought I ought to live up to being a, a, a travel writer – and hit upon the idea uh, of following Ibn Battuta, the the, the great 14th century Moroccan traveller, who who really covered in his wanderings a, a, a lot of the old world. You know, uh, really across Eurasia and and, and 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 Africa. Not so much in Europe, but he, he covered a tremendous amount of the old world. And I set out to write a, a, a book following in his footsteps, uh, or in his f- footnotes, as, as I also call it. Um, and that one book actually turned into three books. But anyway, uh, from the beginning of that project, which took many years, I was trying to read as much as I could of what you can call Arabic travel literature or topographical literature. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was ferreting things out... Uh, Yeah, I suppose the internet was around at that time. It was just coming into play. But I didn't use it a whole amount. Um, Obviously, I went to libraries and looked things up in catalogs. But um, those kind of serendipitous discoveries were were also very important. And I remember very distinctly, I was in a bookshop in London, um, Dawn's Travel Bookshop on Marylebone High Street, uh, and it, it's, a, it's the most beautiful old bookshop. It's got a sort of um, old-fashioned gallery that you climb up to, and in the gallery are second-hand books and antiquarian books. And looking through this, for nothing in particular, a, 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 a book with a sort of pillar-box red cover struck my eye, and I pulled it off the shelf, and it was Abdul Latif's book, Translated under the title *The Eastern Key*, and uh, it's it's a rather beautiful book. It's quite a big format. Um, I suppose it's it's quarto, and it has a a sort of photographic reproduction of the manuscript. Um, and on facing pages, it's got a it's got an English translation. So I said, "Oh gosh, I must have this," and I bought it. It was a reasonable price. Um, and you know took it back to yemen and started reading and then came across this most extraordinary thing in the introduction and uh, <laughs> I, I don't really know how to talk about this because it's so unbelievable but the the translators um, who who are who were a certain judge hafez zand from iraq and uh, mr and mrs john vidian john and ivy vidian Uh, well, their story was roughly as follows. John and Ivy were at a seance, uh, a spiritualist seance with a medium. Okay. Yes, of course, as one does. Yeah, Yeah, as one does, yeah, and as one did particularly in the 1950s, I suppose it was. And they were doing the business with the Ouija board or the glass moving around the table and spelling out the letters. And... Um, in the course of this, uh, a message came out saying, oh, I am Abdul Latif al-Baghdadi. There's a manuscript of mine uh, languishing in the um, Bodleian Library in Oxford, and not many people read it, and I want you to make it more public. (laughs) So they said, all right. Um, And uh, Mr. Vidian went off and got permission to photograph it with his Leica camera, which he did actually quite nicely. And Then Abdul Latif said, oh, you know, and I want you to translate it in in, in another seance. And and somehow or other, this guy from Iraq turned up and helped them because I don't think the Vidians actually knew any Arabic. Um, And there it all is in the introduction to the the book. Um, You know, it's a perfectly uh, pucker publisher. I forget who it is, um, who published it. But it's, you know, it's a perfectly pucker London publisher. And there they are explaining that they were instructed by the author who died nearly 800 years before to um, translate his book and and he sent them a translator and he sent them a translator and he climbed kind of, and and he intervened um, I, you know I think that you know occasionally they had a question and they would ask it.
1: The, the possibilities for for medieval studies here are, are just mind-boggling really if if we could take any of this seriously
2: <laughs> well. I, I mean, it's there in sort of cold print right. and cold ink on the page. Um, you know, I really don't know what to think about this. Uh, I mean, I, I, I suppose I class myself as an academic of sorts, um, uh, but I do have an open mind. You know, I've, I, I, I myself worked on Abdulatif's book over several years, quite, well, actually many years, as, as, as I'll explain, mm-hmm. and I never actually had any sort of post mortem uh, interventions from the author, but I was always open to them. And um no, this was quite extraordinary. But I I mean apart from that, it, it is the most fascinating book. And um i I think we're gonna talk later about the context, yes. but, but um but it really sort of it blew my mind. And this is exactly what Ibn Abi Usayba who was Abdul Latif's biographer says he says it's a book that astonishes the intellect. Uh, in other words, it's a book that blows the mind, and it does. Uh, and 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 um, I went on at that time, which is getting on for twenty years ago, to write a little study about it and about the possibility of an author having an afterlife, um, and it came out. I forget which, which year, but it must be 2002, 2003, something like that. It was published by Slightly Foxed, who, who are a literary quarterly um, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they very nicely published it as their first Christmas book. So it's this sort of miniature book about um, Abdul Latif's manuscript. Um, and, and that's really how I got interested in it.
1: Well, let, let's turn then to our apparently uh, still active and prolific uh, author who passed 800 uh, years ago. So, who who was Abdellatif Al-Bardadi? Uh,
2: well, you might say who is he? Um, uh, um, and uh, I think those in the spiritualist sphere uh, regard him as a, a universal master. Whatever that is, I'm not quite sure, but. It, it, he kind of was a bit of a universal master in his lifetime. He's one of these wonderful Arabic writing polymaths who, who you know, seems to leave not a stone unturned in in, in uh, his intellectual interests. Um, and I wrote somewhere, I think it was in that little study, I, I wrote um, that his interests go from from rhetoric to rhubarb and from Aristotle to infinity. Uh, and you know that is literally the truth. You know he he, he wrote um, he wrote scholarly articles on on all of those things. If you look at his bibliography, um, the majority I think are philosophical matters and a kind of a close second, medical matters. So he was basically a philosopher physician with with a, with a with a with a great interest in in the legacy of Aristotle. And, you know, of course, Aristotle was uh, the subject of much interest and much debate and, uh, for many hundreds of years before mm-hmm. Um But Latif sought to to kind of return to, if you like, a pristine Aristotelianism that, that, that hadn't been affected by subsequent Arabic and other studies. So... Um, yeah he he was he was basically a philosopher physician, and it's difficult to say who he's like there there, there, there there aren't I mean there are other people that he's a bit like in in the history of Arabic letters, but tr- trying to find a sort of western person to compare him to. I think the nearest I've got is is Thomas Brown, Sir Thomas Brown, the great um seventeenth century English physician and writer and stylist, actually, who, who, um, you know, his, his famous works, he wrote some little works, uh, uh, The Urn Burial, The Garden of Cyrus, Pseudodoxia Epidemica, which is quite a big work, um, if you like, debunking uh, commonly held misbeliefs. And... That sort of debunking attitude is, 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 is quite an important element in, in, in Abdul Latif's thinking, as far as we know. Obviously, we don't have that many titles uh, that have survived. But from what we know from his writing, he was a sort of very level-headed empiricist. He, he had inherited from Aristotle that, that ancient tradition of, uh, of, of what you might call autopsy in the old sense. Autopsy, looking for yourself, Uh, yeah, in Arabic. So, you know, everything that you you write is based on looking for yourself, gathering the evidence. So he really had a very scientific viewpoint in the modern sense. You know, it's so often thought... In particularly in the West, that you know, there was this sort of great moor and gulf of, of nothingness after classical times, and then you had the Renaissance, and, um, and then you had science coming along with people like Newton in the 17th century. No, 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 no. I mean, all right. Recent years, a lot of people have written about the Arab or Arabic contribution to science. So we're more aware of that now. But honestly, reading Atul Latif one is always aware of how scientific he is, of how he tests and retests. He looks, for example, uh, I mean, the, the example I love is where he, he, he's writing about Galen, the, the um, ancient um, anatomist, physician, his, his description of the human jawbone. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, which Galen says is, is actually made of two pieces, and they're kind of, inched together in the middle, stuck together in the middle. And Abdul Latif um, actually examined with his helpers and his students uh, uh, 2,000 human jawbones from a necropolis in Egypt to establish that the the human jawbone is, in fact, in one piece. Uh, Well, as it happens, there is a kind of little medial suture or whatever it's called. But he, 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 he worked hard to disprove Galen, who was this great guy on a pedestal that nobody would ever, uh, most people would never want to touch. But he worked hard to disprove Galen. But at the same time, he could disprove himself. And Abdul Latif, going on to another bit of the body, he's talking about the sacrum, mm-hmm. the bottom of the spine, and you know, saying how many parts is it. And, and you know, he gets into this problem where the bits fuse with age. So... Um, But he says, you know, I I investigated all these sacraments, or sacra, or I suppose the plural is, um, and I'm really not sure. I don't know if I'm right. And to be able to say, I don't know if I'm right, that is the basis of being a scientist. Right, right, exactly. Doubt is scientific. Certainty is pre-scientific. And I think even these days, I mean, I've been thinking you know, just sort of leaping to the present um, with so much um, uh, faith being put in science, which is absolutely right in the, in the time of the pandemic we're going through. I think we have to remember that scientists are not gods or demigods. You know, scientists are fallible and that very fallibility is what makes them scientists. Mm-hmm. And that was what made Abdul Latif a, 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 a scientist. He was very conscious Again, going back to Aristotle that he was in the in the in the aristotelian tradition, and you know if you look at his sources the the, the that he 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 quotes in uh, a physician on the Nile you know he he looking at the history of egypt for example, he will go back to the ancients always first mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will go back to uh um, actually, even before the ancients, he will go back to Holy Scripture. Right. So he will go back to the Qur'an, he'll go back to the Torah, um, then he'll go back to the ancients. Um, and he felt very much that he was in a scientific continuum, if, if you like, and sort of bearing the torch of knowledge. This idea of the torch of knowledge, it's, <laughs> it, it's one that he actually uses at, at, at one point. And I always see him as a, as a kind of torchbearer in a in a relay. It's it's an old image, it goes right back to to I suppose to Lucretius um and the idea of vitae lampada, uh, the lamp of life. You know, the way that or oh, what does he say? Sorry, I'm 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 digressing slightly into Latin, but it's another part of my background. And um, you know, the idea that Lucretius saying that, that, that civilizations rise and fall. A knowledge is passed on from one to to to, to another, and then he says, "Et quasi cursores vitae lampada tradunt," um, and, and like runners, they pass on the, the the torch of of life. And and you know, reading Abdulatif, reading around him, you get very much this picture that he, he saw himself as a as a, a relay runner, a relay of, of knowledge,
1: I think it's one of the the wonderful things about the, this this particular manuscript is that you see his process played out. Like he describes mm. his, his his process, I, and and from that angle, it, it's a very interesting text, both for a specialist as well as for a general reader who wants to get a better sense of what scientific output at this time would have looked like, or or, or how the mm. thought processes work. And and I, I very much appreciated that aspect uh, of this, this, this particular text. Turning uh, to the text itself, uh, what do we know about the context in which it was written? It, it obviously uh, details uh, specific events right at the turn of the 13th century of the Christian calendar, mm. but what was the context that, that spurred him on to write this?
2: Yeah, well, basically... Um to, to fill in a bit more about his background, he he came from um, Abdul Latif al Baghdadi, you know, as his name, as his surname tells us, he came from Baghdad, and um, Baghdad at that time was not an intellectual centre. So he 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 moved from there in the eleven seventies, eleven eighties, rather, um, into into the Ayyubid world uh, or uh, uh, the, uh, um, of. Saladin, mm-hmm. and um, actually kind of caught up with Saladin, Salah in his in one of his camps in Palestine. And really the, that polity that Saladin founded, uh, it, it, it based really in, 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 as it came to be in Egypt and, and, um, and the Levant, it inherited a lot of what was there already from the Fatimid. Um But for, for, for a kind of brief period... It, it, it was really quite intellectually active and it, it, it cemented really Egypt's place uh, as the intellectual center of the, of the Arabic speaking and writing world. So by gravitating towards Egypt, Abdul Latif was doing exactly what you would do as a scholar and he met Al-Fadl, Al-Qadhi al fadl Al-Qadhi al fadl I should say, uh, who was Saladin's sort of right-hand man. Uh, and who gave him an introduction to people in Cairo. And he went to Cairo, and he kind of knocked around with, if that's the phrase, with people like Moses, Maimonides, Musa ibn Maimun, the great Jewish scholar, and, and various others, um, including somebody called Asharai, who was, uh, really, he comes across as uh, as Latif's guru, who was a scholar of Aristotle, but a kind of primitive Aristotelian. Uh, We don't know much about him, but uh, but he seemed to have had a great effect on uh, Abdul Latif's life and thinking. And anyway, eventually he, he, um, I think he left Egypt, and then eventually he got back in the the sort of train of of, um, Saladin's son, who had become the sultan, at least in Egypt, so there he was with this sort of inroad into the highest level of court life, and, and he, he kind of ghost-wrote a, a book or two for the, for the new sultan. And, um, uh, and, and, and he seemed to be fairly well established in Egypt uh, and, and, and just sort of started observing it and wrote really quite a large book, which I think he said had 12 chapters 12 long chapters, which was a kind of omnium gatherum compendium book about Egyptian history and um, uh, topography and um, plants and so on and everything else. Now, that big book is lost, but out of it he pulled two chapters eventually, um, which became the book that we now have and that I've translated. And he says that that he chose the information Based on things which he himself had, had observed, so here his empiricism is cutting in, and the importance of his empiricism, of his looking at things, and he said, and I have, uh, I have pulled this information out because it is it, it, it is more impressive to the mind, and you know indeed it is uh, it does create a very very strong impression. This this whole book that I've translated because it's it's um, an eyewitness account, and. Uh, I think we're going to get on later onto the details of of what's actually in the parts of the book. Uh, But in in general, the the long chapter about antiquities, it's him going and looking face to face, looking at the Sphinx and writing exactly what he thinks um, about the Sphinx. And and it's, it's, um, it's very sort of direct. You know, you're there actually looking with him. And, you know, even his title, its, it's uh, his full title in Arabic, it's Kitab al um, wal atibar fil amur al al-Mushahada wal-Hawadith al-Ma'ayyana misr Literally, it's something like the, the book of edification and admonition on things personally witnessed and events seen at first hand in the land of Egypt. And so it kind of challenges you to go and read this book and and look with the author, and that's what you do. And then, of course, when you get on to the second part about the absolutely horrific, I can't think of the word. Um, What is it? The famine. Famine, thank you, yeah. Um, I got sort of lost in the book. Um, Yeah, the famine, the horrific famine and the plague. This is when the kind of eyewitnessing, Becomes rather frightening, uh,
1: and and also important because uh, some of what he says is is very hard to believe, and you have to keep reminding yourself he saw this.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I do I do talk about um, uh, in my introduction. I, I kind of try to root out some of the um, uh, other accounts which would um, uh, corroborate what Abdulatif said, and we haven't got a lot. Because much of what he says is talking about the the fuqara, the, the, the the paupers, um, and, and most people don't tend to write about them. They don't even tend to see them. Um, so, <laughs> you know, this is one of the reasons why the book is so valuable, because he's one of the few people who who actually goes and looks at what's happening to to these poor people, poor in every sense, poor economically and poor and miserable. Wretched, the wretched of the earth. Um, And uh, this is what gives the book its great power and and its really unforgettable atmosphere. You know, there there are not many books that, that, that haunt you, but this book haunts you. And this is what I said in that little study I wrote about it, Ghostwriter. You know, you don't need the ghost of Abdul Latif to appear to you. The book is enough of a ghost. It's haunting enough. So he pulled out these two chapters, and, and, and I think we're going to talk later about, about why and for whom he, 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 he pulled them out.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: I, I would love to just talk for a minute before we get into the sort of uh, meat of the text and 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 its intended audience to talk about your process. Um so for those who, who are not familiar with uh, the books in the, the Library of Literature, or sorry, the Library of Arabic Literature Series, they're all published with inline Arabic texts. So one page Arabic, one page in translation. So in addition to those interested in this type of text and generalist readers, uh, those who are learning to read classical Arabic would, will also find the, these texts very valuable. And so of course I'm, I'm giving, and I'm a little rusty. Mm-hmm. You know, but I spent a good amount of time staring at the Arabic, uh, trying to, to to see if if I would have gotten out of it what you got out of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Just to, 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 just to break in, I mean, when I was a classicist, um, you know, there are those wonderful things called the lerb editions of the classics, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the Library of Arabic Literature is it, it, it's it's actually a very similar idea where you get the facing page of Arabic and English. And the Lerb, um, you get your, your Latin on one side and your translation on, on the other, or your Greek your translation. And and I mean, these the, the Lerb books, when I was an undergraduate, they were an absolute godsend, you know, when you had to read the whole of Homer, the whole of uh-huh. Virgil, and I mean the whole of them, and the whole of just about everything else on earth uh, written in Latin and Greek to, for, for, for sort of ease of reading, um, darting from one page from the from the original <laughs> to the translation, um, it did help quite a lot. Um, so I think with the uh, with the Library of Arabic Literature, we, we are doing a service not only to Arabic letters but to to um, students of Arabic letters. I, absolutely. Um, and so
1: now that you're in, you're in the the driver's seat, so to speak, you're, you're the person who actually gets to produce these translations. Tell me about the practice or, or the art of, of putting translation into a text like this, because I, I did notice that there are a lot of terms that are far less specific in the Arabic than one, especially a modern reader would want them to be in the English.
2: Yeah. And I'm glad you call it an art. And, and, and I think translation is an art, uh, um, but it is also a science. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, can you make the distinction? But um It hovers between, but I think more on the art side. Yes, um, specificity of meaning or exactness of meaning in Arabic. um, It's always a problem. Um, And, you know, you get this big problem with pronouns in Arabic. Uh Uh, You know, he did this and it did this and he did that and it did that and he did that and it did that and, and, and you, you know, You have to kind of always be completely on your toes about who he is. And and it might be talking about several different people in the same very long sentence. Yes. Um, And yes, there is a certain amount of interpretation that goes on. Uh, 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 No, interpretation is the wrong word. Um, Sort of glossing Mm -hmm. that goes on. What I try to do when I produce a translation from Arabic is is, is start off trying to do something really quite literal. Um, and interpolations, anything extra that I add, I stick in square brackets, okay? And then the uh, Library of Arabic Literature doesn't like square brackets, and, and I quite agree. It's, it's um, you know, they do hold up reading. So you sort of gradually iron out the square brackets by incorporating the interpolations, but not so uh, to an extent where you are deforming the text and certainly not to an extent where you are stuffing it. Mm-hmm. And I think in my introduction, I compare my process of translation to anatomy, not to taxidermy. Yes. Uh, and 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 I hope that Abdul Latif would approve of this, being himself an anatomist. And I think, you know taxidermists will, will stuff a text uh, and they'll put in extraneous material. And, uh, you know, just one example I can think of um, is when Sylvester de Sessy, um, the great French orientalist who translated this text um, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, you know, you, you sometimes get a, the most gruesome description of something in Abdul latif Mm-hmm. Uh, and Abdul Latif says, and this practice could be seen throughout Cairo. Uh, Sassi translates it as, uh, and this detestable barbarie, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. detestable barbarism uh, could be seen everywhere. And, you know, that is a moral judgment which is not there in the original. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry, it's just not there. And that is what I call stuffing. And hugely, though, I admire Sylvester uh, de Sassi. You know, he, he, he is inclined to do this, and the Vidians who met Abdul Latif in the seance, uh they follow really the French translation. That their in English translation isn't really a, a fresh English translation. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, what else can I say? It's it, uh, I I think I probably stray on or uh, on the side of of. of, of, of Literalness in translation. I, do, I don't like paraphrase.
0: Paraphrase
2: mm-hmm. is is is, um, is is anathema, really, to me. You know, obviously, you've got to get the meaning across, but but you mustn't kind of wander around the meaning. You must follow the line of the author's thought. The only times when I would stray off the line are when he is being very obviously striking. Or inventive in his Arabic, and Latif writes actually very plain Arabic, mm-hmm. by and large, uh, but occasionally he drops in something which is really quite um, extraordinary for its it, 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 its, its impact. Um, and there, maybe I will play around with the translation. And an example I can give is is the first of his chapters on the um, on the famine. It, it began in the year seven. Um what was it? Five five ninety seven, I guess. Am I right? Yeah. In hijri terms. So in short he calls it the year seven. And mm-hmm. uh, in Arabic he says, and then came in the year seven. Mm-hmm. year seba. Okay? Now Seba is it's one of the alternative readings for it it's it, it's a word which which in short also means monster or beast. Mm-hmm. So there's this double meaning. You know, right. seven is actually a beast. Seven is the number of the beast. So in, a, in an instance like that, I will try and reflect that in my, tra- in my translation. And, and I, th- I think I called it seven, that monstrous year. So, that, I mean, that was a pure interpol- interpolation, that monstrous year. But you have to get the, the, the double meaning of the Arabic across. And I think right. I called it that monstrous year, that predatory date it's a predator, but it, it kind of also predates because it's a date. So I play around with the English in no uncertain terms, but only because he's played with the Arabic. Right. But I will always, you know, advert to um, make a put a note to something like that and say, look, I haven't been literal here. Uh, otherwise, I do try to be as literal as I possibly can while preserving uh, sense for the English reader.
1: So, as a historical chronicle, the the, the text um, has has great value, uh, particularly for someone like myself who is working on. Reading this in the 21st century, wanting to get a feel for what was going on in, in 12th century Egypt. But of course, Abdelatif al-Bardadi wasn't writing for me. He, he was writing for people of his own time. What would have been the value of having a text like this, especially a text that is both combination description of the flora, fauna, ancient ruins of Egypt, and then a description of these two very harrowing years? At the time that it was written, and and who was it intended for? Who, 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 if we can put ourselves in his head without getting out the Ouija board, who uh. Uh, would he have imagined his readers were, were going to be?
2: Oh well, the the answer is absolutely there in pl- in plain sight, right at the beginning of the book. He wrote it for the caliph, right, the Khalifa, um, you know the 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 the, um, uh, 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 the caliph and in. Baghdad in his home city and it's you know just to give you a bit of a bit of background um, the caliph uh, he was one of the Abbasid dynasty who had been ruling in Baghdad for let me work it out uh, 550 years Mm -hmm. give or take when Abdul Latif wrote the book and for the past 350 or so, maybe 370, they had really been completely uh, under the heel of others, and and, and Mm -hmm. usually Turks of one sort or another, sometimes Persians of one sort or another, but they had been the most nominal rulers possible. But Nasser, first of all, he enjoyed a very long reign. I think it was 40, 45 years. Uh, And Second, he was very ambitious, and he sought to, if you like, to restore the prestige of the caliphate um, and its reach, and its um, not not so much its military or imperial reach. I mean, those days were long over. Uh, you had people like Saladin and lots of others who were all actually having the, the 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 sultan, the the temporal power, and that's of course what sultan means to begin with. So. Uh, there was the caliph in Baghdad, and um, Nasser was trying to place himself again at the center of things, first of all spiritually, uh, uh, as the kind of, uh, as as God's um, representative on earth, and then second by actually instituting links with the old empire. And to this end, the caliph had this sort of network of spies everywhere, so he didn't have a military empire or a Political empire, but he had a kind of empire of intelligence. Or this was this was the idea. This is what he aimed for. And Abdul Latif, in his introduction to the book, says, um, uh, "You know, I'm writing this so that no part of the information about the lands of the caliph, however distant, and no detail of the lives of his subjects should uh, should should miss his attention, or you know, words to that effect." I'm paraphrasing. So really, it was, it was a, um, it was a, the book was a report for the caliph, and Abdul Latif believed very strongly that the caliph being God's representative on earth, by serving the caliph, he was also serving God. Mm-hmm. So the book is kind of a, an act of faith. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really embodying what the Quran says time and again. I think six or seven times it, it talks about going around and looking at things. Mm -hmm. There's a a verse that goes, um, do they not go uh, about the earth um, looking about what happened to those who were there before them? So this aspect of observation um, and recording and reporting is an act of faith. And he did it on earth for the Caliph. He did it uh, on on a more universal level or spiritual level. He did it for God. I I don't know if that makes sense to a modern reader, but... um, you know, to me, it makes it makes um, it makes eminent sense. Mm-hmm. And there's a remarkable passage which really gives the structure of his thought, uh, of Latif's thought, uh, and it's it comes at the end of that very very long chapter on monuments, and he yes. says, uh, and let it be known that the pharaohs in Egypt, the, the Nabataeans here and there, and the Sasanians in Persia, and, blah, 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 and all these ancient peoples he, he lists, are now that um, uh, their lands are now under the aegis of the caliph in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if he's kind of building this pyramid, which is based on the past, but which culminates in this point in the present, which is the caliph and, um, and his presence in Baghdad. And I likened it in my introduction rather graphically, um, I think, but I think pertinently, to if you think of the dollar, US dollar bill Mm -hmm. um, and the symbol on the back of the pyramid and the eye on top of the pyramid, and the caliph was there in Baghdad, like that eye on top of the pyramid, looking out over his, if you like, imagined domains. So really Abdulatif was was fueling his, his the caliph's appetite for 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 intelligence.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, I think one of the groups that he he specifically mentioned are are the Copts of Egypt. So um who are a now people as opposed to a then people, and a very old people yes. who are within the, the, the caliph's reign. Which brings us to the to the first part of the book, which is this this wonderfully encyclopedic at times, slightly humorous; um, at times, very serious. Description of uh, Egypt's geography, its flora, its fauna, its food, as well as 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 a, a notable, as, as you've mentioned a couple of times now, a section dealing um, with the with the ancient ruins. Mm. Can Can you sort of tell us a little more about about what he describes here and and how he he builds this this section? In which he's he's cataloging all of all of these wondrous things.
2: You know, again, being being for the caliph in Baghdad, he tends to when he's talking about, uh, for example, flora and fauna, he tends to concentrate on things that would be unusual. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not so much flora as, as, as cultivated uh, crops and fruits. Uh, um, you know, he, he he has a length, for example, a lengthy section on the banana. Mm-hmm which at that time seemed not to be known in, in Baghdad or not known very well. So, you know, he, he, he comes up with this, to us, sort of slightly harebrained idea that, um, that bananas might arise from, what is it, a date stone being planted in a taro corm, you know, one of those sort of yam-type root things. Um, and he goes into all the business about you know the humours the four humours um and explains why this might be the case but you know he casts out on the on the theory but he he's always discussing things as as an empiricist and says you know look at look at the leaves of the of the banana plant compare them to those of a date palm and you will see that the difference is such and this is uh, on account of them of the um banana having gained uh, a large amount of moisture, one of the four um, humors, from, from the taro corn. And, you know, it's all a bit sort of cockeyed, but um, he's he's never dogmatic about it. And he always leaves himself open to to, to, to be falsified, as I said earlier, in a proper scientific manner. So we, we have quite a lot of that sort of thing. And he talks about, you know, these... Um, plants that are, you know, something like Molochia. Mm -hmm. Molochia. You you know, if you've been to Egypt, you've probably had Molochia, which is uh, mallow. um, And they make it into this lovely, gloopy sort of mucus, slightly snotty, soupy thing, which I absolutely adore. But it's Um,
1: very hard to describe to somebody who's never experienced it.
2: Yeah. I, I mean... You know, you dip in your bread and you pull it up, and and all these sort of strings hang off it, and it <laughs> looks a bit. Um, I I know people who have an actual physical aversion to molokhia. An old friend of mine, you know, when, 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 whenever I would eat it, she would actually make a barrier, of, of sort of <laughs> pots between herself and me, so that she didn't watch me eating molokhia. But <laughs> you know, he talks about molokhia and. Um, various other sorts of mallow and, and, and discusses their possible relationships and so on. And um, it's, all, it's all fascinating, that. Um, and, you know, talks about animals, um, has quite a, quite a bit about crocodiles, for example, um, and, you know, in, including these, these wonderfully um, – I, I think it comes from, from ancient sources. The, the idea that everything to do with a crocodile is based on 60 – Mm-hmm. Um, it's got 60 teeth it's got 60 bones somewhere or other in its spine or something and and uh, when it copulates it ejaculates 60 times <laughs> and you know if you're into kind of weird and wonderful information like that um, this is the place and um, oh animals of course the thing that he goes on most about with animals is chick factories um you know, it's this is uh, people talk about chick lit. Um, this is the ult- ultimate chick lit book, but not in the usual sense, because <laughs> he, he's talking about chick factories. Whereby, um, if if you were a sort of falah, uh, an Egyptian peasant, and you kept chickens, um, you would take your you wouldn't let the pen sit on the chickens, but you would take them to a factory where they would be artificially incubated. Mm-hmm. And you know he goes on for pages and pages about these factories, and you think, God, why? You know, it's kind of—I don't want to say it's boring, but it, it, you know, it's—it's it's it, it's so detailed. It's—it's it's almost like it's almost sort of trippy. Um, and of course, the reason is that there really weren't factories at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, this—this this was a, an, an industrial process, and it was you know it might have been one of the very few industrial processes in the world so you know this is why he describes it at great length and it builds up into the into this sort of weird um uh, in, info trip um for want of a better
1: better phrase it's, it's almost like reading corporate espionage or, or something like he's, he's he's sending the instructions over to to iraq to uh to tell them how to, how to do this or something. He I, might, I'm for not...
2: all I know, have had that in mind. But when you look at what you've got to do, you know, you've got a chamber with, with a door that's almost too small to crawl a in. Bit. And in this chamber, you have 2,000 eggs. And every day, you have to turn the eggs one by one uh, three times and you can't cheat and turn an egg three times and then turn the next one three. No, you've got to turn the egg once and then the next one once and then you've got to go through all the 2,000 and then you go back to the beginning and start again. Right. And he describes this all in great detail and I I don't think um, Emerson, uh, am I thinking about Emerson? Walden. In, in Walden, Emerson describes at one point, I, I happened to be reading Walden while, while I was working on Abdu'l-Latif and and, and Emerson describes uh, making hoe cakes in the fire outside his cabin and turning them uh, as an Egyptian turns his eggs. Uh, and obviously, you know, Emerson had come across some description of chick factories. Um,
1: but- well, if I'm not mistaken, the eggs were resting in dung, which also made the process seem a little less appealing.
2: No, the dung the dung is on the roof of the chamber. Oh, Right. Yes. Okay. You got. You got to get it right. You know, um, the chicks, the the chicks, the eggs were resting in um, on sort of mats covered in something called sars. Oh,
1: right. Yes.
2: And I thought, oh God, what the hell is sass? And you know, it's not really in. It's not in any of the dictionaries. It turns out it's a Coptic word, um, mm-hmm. and it's the it's the um, the the kind of uh, the waste material from making linen. Oh. Okay. Um, but no, the eggs the eggs sit inside, and the dung sits in trays on the roof, and then you light it, um, and it burns very slowly, and it keeps a sort of even temperature. That's that's the idea. But it's um, no, it's it's I I I I'd, I'd heard about the incubation of eggs using dung before, and before I read this text, I imagined it was you, you actually sort of stuck them in the dung. Um, <laughs> but but no, it's not quite as. Um, as um, as smelly as that, yeah. I will
1: say I, I am I am relieved to have been wrong about that. That the the was on right. the roof. It 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 seems much more uh, uh, sanitary, I suppose.
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, it, it was it, it it was clearly a sanitary operation because um, uh, no doubt it had been going on for centuries, if not millennia, before Abdul Latif, and it certainly went on to. Um, until into the nineteenth century, and you know, Lane Edward William mm-hmm. Lane um, in his manners and customs of the um, modern Egyptians, he has a, a very good description of it, but not as good as Abdul Latif. So you get things like that. The food, uh, the food chapter is very interesting. Do you remember the picnic pie? Ah, uh-huh. it, it, it has to be in any book of great recipes, in any sort of um, anthology of great recipes. <laughs> Because, you know, there's that nursery rhyme about um, four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. Yeah. This has got, I think it's got a total of 90 birds in it. Um, It's a very big pie. And it's also got three sheep. You know, not only that, but sort of fried cheese, um, samosas, pasties, all these other things. And he gets to the end of the recipe... He says, oh, and if you feel like it, before you put the top of the pie on, you can add another sheep. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, it, and it's this sort of special pie that, um, it, you know, if you were the sultan, you would take it hunting. But he also talks about the food of the of the ordinary people, all these sort of salted sprats and things. Um, mm-hmm. And um, not quite, I'm not sure if they are the same as Fisik. Um which the Egyptians still eat these days. Have you ever had Fisig? I don't
1: think so. It, it's fermented, is it not?
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of... Um, the best fish to do it with is mullet. Right. Um, and you, you kind of... Basically, you fish it, and, and then you leave it in the sun for a few days to rot. Uh, and then you stop the rot <laughs> by putting salt on it. Uh, and then... Um, Chuck it in barrels of, of brine,
1: and um, it sounds a bit like the, the ancient Roman uh, garum.
2: I think I yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's it's a kind of cousin to garum, and all those other things, Worcestershire sauce as well. Mm. When you drink your Bloody Mary, think of rotting fish because I think it's a component of Worcestershire <laughs> sauce. Um, uh, I hope I, <laughs> I, I hope I haven't put people off Worcestershire sauce. I love it myself; strongly recommend it. Um, but um, no, he talks about yeah, salted fish, things like that. And then yeah, the great chapter about the monuments. This is really the centerpiece of that first part of the book: the, the ifada, the edification, and really, it's it's anything you would you would want to know about. Pharaonic monuments, and you know he's not the first person to write about them. Of course, you know um, Herodotus did. Hecateus of Abdera and ancients and and earlier Arabic writers wrote wrote about them, but Abdul Latif writes about them as a a connoisseur. Mm -hmm. It's the only word possible for him, and you know he describing. I mentioned you know he looks at the face of the Sphinx. And there's this beautiful passage where he talks about a smile playing over its lips. And it's very, very reminiscent of a passage in Vivant Denon, the French artist describing the Sphinx, and you know who was a, a, a true connoisseur. So it, here you have connoisseurship cover, uh, going over the centuries. Um, Abdel Latif talks about mummies, great, uh, and the method of mummification, he talks uh, particularly about the beauty of Therionic's sculpture. Uh, there is a really striking passage, which was very hard to translate, where he, he looks at a statue, and I like to think it's the, it's the statue of Ramesses II at, um, at Memphis, mm-hmm. which is still there, sort of recumbent. Uh, I'm not sure it is that, but he, he kind of tracks down it with his anatomist's eye, and he looks at every relationship between every plane of, 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 of the way the torso is, is depicted and um, uses some very, very abstruse anatomical terminology that, that was very hard to translate, I must say.
1: And after all of this, this pleasantry, we get to the, to the second part of the book, which is altogether rather different and quite haunting and quite difficult. Uh, really, uh, to read even even you know in, in in translation from the from the distance of eight hundred years, as it describes a year of well two years of low Nile and the famine that mm. resulted from from it. So it, let's turn our attention here now because it's it's altogether much more urgent and sad and alarmist and and all of these. All of the things that uh, we find fascinating in the first section about his accuracy and his attention to detail almost become, as a reader, you don't want to believe them in the second.
2: Yes. um, And I think the word that I've used about him as an observer is is, uh, ruthless. (laughs) It's rather like um, if you see the report of an atrocity or a disaster or some terrible attack on the BBC... You know, they won't show you the really nasty things. Mm-hmm. They won't show you the bodies. If they show you a tiny bit of blood, they will warn you about it. But there are, you know, other networks that that show you things in great um, in great detail. Um, and that, you know, there's a there's a there's a news network of um, news about Yemen that I that I sometimes look at, which has the most horrific. Um, photographs of the aftermaths of battles and things, and and, and it's kind of like looking at that, reading Abdul Latif's second half. But it's it's almost worse because how can I put it? He 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 is ruthless. He does not judge morally, mm-hmm. even though you know he was a good Muslim, of course, and and you know he was a philosopher, and um, he could have judged, but he didn't. And it's all the more shocking for that, I think. There are passages where where he's describing,
1: um, you know, desperate people resorting to uh, cannibalism. Yeah, you know, just just very very desperate acts. And and as you you mentioned earlier, he's focusing on the destitutes. Th- these are people that yeah. didn't have any much to begin with.
2: Yeah, and 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 I use the the phrase um, uh, the wretched of the mm-hmm. earth, and and one is so conscious of, uh, 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 of, of their wretchedness in all of this. Um, and, you know, when, when, for example, he says that he saw, actually I think it was, it was his friend saw an old woman with a corpse in her lap and she, she was gnawing away uh, at its thigh, picking bits off its thigh. And she said, oh, don't worry, it's my husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the sight of, I think it was in Alexandria, a, a cauldron containing the heads of five babies yeah. stewed with um, top-quality spices. Um, it's it's all very difficult to
1: read. It, I, I, know, it, it must have been even harder to, to figure out how to render that into English.
2: Well, no, it's not, because it is so bare. It is so... Um, it 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 is so going back to that word it's so empirical it's just him it's him looking and observing and recording in a sense for me the the two the two scenes that are the most shocking are one of a woman who has been caught eating a roasted child and she's taken before the governor and she's told to confess and she doesn't and she has been she's given two hundred strokes mm-hmm. uh, two hundred lashes, and she's still doesn't confess. And he says something like, and she couldn't speak because she had lost her humanity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she's dragged out and dies while she's being dragged out.
1: That was the, yeah, that, that was a particularly poignant scene because he's acknowledging, yeah. he's acknowledging that she has nothing left.
2: And almost that, that loss of humanity is the most tragic thing. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the rest of it, it, you know, he's he's not making it into a kind of p- pornography of suffering. No, not at all. He's just recording. Um, but when he makes these points, um, as he does very rarely, that um, on that occasion, there's some, another woman. He says you know, he talks again that she had, you know, he she had lost her tabiyyat her or something like that, her, her, her human nature. And those for me are the most. Um, Difficult parts, mm-hmm. and you know, i I talked about I talked about the torch of knowledge, and for me, it 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 has it, been a very much a theme um, working on this book. And uh, you know, I quote right um, right at the beginning um, as my epigraph. It's it, it's a quotation from Abdul Latif, and the, the, the elsewhere, it's it's one of his sort of um, isolated sayings that got noted down. And he says that uh, um, a man of knowledge is like a person carrying a firebrand in a dark night. And this image haunted me so much in the second half. The fact that he is walking through the dark night of the history of Cairo, one of the darkest, with his firebrand. (laughs) And the, the light from the firebrand is revealing all these horrors but at the same time, it's dispelling the darkness.
1: It's certainly a very unique manuscript or or set of passages. Um, I don't think I've ever read anything quite like it, and um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it is in fact illuminating um, because these are the kinds of things that I don't think it covered very much. It's it's not as you you. Said earlier, it's not the sort of nice things that people want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and I think that's what makes it interesting.
2: Yeah, and and he was an illuminated person, right? Um, and and I think this is why you know why he got mixed mixed up with the with the, the sort of spiritualist <laughs> crowd in the twentieth century. Going back to that that, um, that you know that extraordinary pass, uh, scene in in um, uh, of, of Of him appearing at the seance that you know he, he, he does have he, he, he has this sort of light of knowledge and he sheds light on things i don 't know quite how to put it no that 's not, that's not the most um, eloquent way of putting it, but uh, all I can do is come back again and again to the image of uh, of 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 him walking with a firebrand mm-hmm. through the dark night, the <laughs> Who, who walks with a firebrand on the, on a, on a on a dark night um, and it's sort of the dark night of the soul as well right right it's quite difficult to deal with uh, out of all of these
1: these anecdotes in in this text is there is there a particular passage you, you consider to be your favorite
2: i think there is actually one i've, I've thought about this um and it's uh, i like it because it's it, it's an example of humour in the darkest of the dark of the book, and um, this is what it's one of the things I love about Abdul Latif that um, he 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 does <laughs> he does see the funny side of even the most horrific events, and he tells uh, among the many anecdotes he tells about about the, the, the famine and the plague, he tells the story about uh, the story of three doctors. Mm-hmm who Who used to come and he would he would teach them they would study with him, and he talks about these three doctors, three physicians um and the first one, oh I think he says his father went out and never came back um, mm-hmm. the, uh, and was obviously eaten or something kidnapped and eaten. the second one a woman kind of enticed him to go and visit somebody sick and he got um, cold feet and thought that she was going to knock him on the head or something, and so he, he, he made good his escape. But the third doctor, this is my favorite bit. Again, it's somebody who went to him and said, oh, I've got a sick person that I want you to come visit. So off they went, and they, they went deeper and deeper into this sort of labyrinth of little streets, um, and um, the, 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 the doctor began to suspect the man's motives and um, then I think as I translated it uh, uh, and yet his mind was put at ease by the thought of good fat fees <laughs> um, and it, it's one of the rare occasions when Abdul Latif <laughs> slips into rhyming prose so I rhymed the English as well and uh, so on he goes um, and eventually the guy takes him into this ramshackle house and uh, not a staircase and knocks on the door, and the guy's friend comes out, and he says, and I think this is my actual translation, you've taken your time. Have you caught us a bit of game that's worth the wait? <laughs> At which point, when the, when the doctor hears this, uh, Abdul Latif said, he turned to jelly. Yes. but by good, yeah, But by good fortune, there was a window next to him, and he jumped out of the window and landed in the stable, at which the stable keeper makes over towards him and he thinks, Oh God, you know, out of the frying pan but the stable keeper says, Oh, don't worry, they're always killing people yeah. and turning them into into um, meat stews. Yes. Yeah. So, and yeah, it's just the way the story is told. And you know, I, 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 I quoted the, the, the accomplice's words in a sort of cod cockney. Because uh, it reminds me so much of Sweeney Todd, mm-hmm. you know Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of London, who used to cut people's throats and then hand them on to somebody to turn into pies. I, it's, <laughs> it's it's just
1: that moment of black humour that, that 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 really kind of makes that really makes this a very special monograph.
2: Yes, and and of course humour can can be a deadly serious thing, uh, depending on its context.
1: I. Yeah. Uh, Two more questions, and and then I will I will let you go to uh, to enjoy your day. So the first one, um, you have famously been a resident of Sanaa, uh, Yemen, for many decades. I'm speaking to you now in Sri Lanka, and so and you do mention in the intro of the book working on this translation as bombs were falling on the neighborhood that you were living in. Uh, so I do have to ask. You've cultivated a large adopted family in Yemen. How your loved ones are doing, considering that, that the situation in Yemen is is not good and hasn't been for for the better part of the last decade.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, actually, they they've cultivated me <laughs> um, rather than the other way around. Um, no, they're they're doing okay. They're doing okay. You know, you have to put your trust in in you know the the. They're good Muslims, so they put their trust in God mm-hmm. um, and um, and they're doing okay. Uh, two of the young ones are in Malaysia studying um, and I've been with them on and off. You know, I'm f- fully intending to return to, to Sana'a, to Yemen, um, uh, and I'm missing it very much. Um, but I, I must admit, it was it was quite strange working on this book during the war, during the thick of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, where, with, as you say, with missiles raining down on Sana'a and and really, you know, unspeakably, an unspeakably pointless conflict taking pay- place right outside my window. Um, and, you know, there I was. I, I was actually working on another book at the same time, uh, um, quite a big history that I just called uh, uh, Arabs, a 3,000-year history of people's tribes and empires. Somehow working on that and working on Abdul Latif kind of almost at the same time. They, 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 they informed each other. Mm-hmm. Or, or to put it more clearly, Abdul Latif's way of looking informed me, informed my way of looking, because we were, we were both um, uh, observing shocking events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And, you know, I, I think I tried to learn from him that coolness of gaze, if you like, that... that mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't want to say I'm ruthless, um, but that coolness, that detachedness, um, which is of course necessary for any um, academic pursuit. Yeah. Um, but it, no, it was a strange experience, and um, and you know, I, I was always reading bits out to the family and saying, "Oh, what do you think about this?" And it it was lovely to get their reaction as well. You know, they helped me a lot, and they supported me, and they fed me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know Ramadan, Ramadan food. Yes, um, tiffin tins would would appear at my door, filled with the most delicious food from uh, from my sort of adoptive family. So I have a lot to thank them for.
1: And so I'll, I'll wrap up by asking, um,
2: what are you working on next,
1: or where do you go from here?
2: Yeah. So where do I go from here? Um, have, having worked on two books at the same time, on the history and um, a physician on the Nile. I, I've taken things a bit easy, but I'm now getting into a new text, which is, um, the autobiography of Ibn Khaldun, mm. the great, um, uh, 14th, early 15th century, um, um, North African, I suppose, historian and philosopher of history and, um, sociologist, as, he, as, he, as he's very much thought to be these days. Um, and he appended uh, to his very long history uh, an account of his life and his education and the, the, the many shenanigans that he got involved in, in politically. And um, it's really a sort of hopscotch across Spain and North Africa to Cairo. And, you know, he ends up meeting Timur um, mm-hmm. Tamerlane, um, the, the the Mongol leader, and um, no, it's 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 a fascinating text. It's it's very much a sort of mosaic text um, or or a collage, you know, because it's got lots of what you might call realia, you know, letters, uh, poems that people have written, poems that he's written, you know, official documents. Um, it's a fascinating text. It's it's unusual uh, to read for a modern reader because it is so. So various, various, so varied. Um, but it's 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 interesting to translate and and a challenge because it's got plenty of uh, of of verse and mm-hmm. um, plenty of rhyming prose. So that's one thing I'm working on, um, and I will be working on something of my own, but I'm not sure what it is yet.
1: Well, I I think we're all eagerly waiting to see uh, what's next for you, Tim McIntosh Smith. Is the editor and translator of Abdel Latif Al Berdadi's A Physician on the Nile, a description of Egypt and Journal of the Famine Years. It's out from the Library of Arabic Literature, which is published by New York University Press in 2021. Tim McIntosh Smith, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.